Well, today being the memorial of St. Leo the Great, one of our great popes and theologians in our tradition, it's fitting to have this gospel reading for his day, which talks about the institution of the, of the papacy, of Peter being the first, first pope, and of course the promise that the keys to the kingdom would be given to Pope and to Peter, and then in succession to the popes thereafter. And then also that the gates of the netherworld will never prevail against the church. Always a good reminder to, to hear that the gates of the, of the netherworld shall not prevail against the church. Okay, but there's something else that's interesting in this reading. You know, the word Christ is the word that is most often used throughout the New Testament to refer to Jesus. Other people talk about Jesus as the Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One. But what term does Jesus himself use to refer to himself? The term he uses the most is Son of Man. Not Son of God, but Son of Man. That's strange. And it should, ask her, should lead us to ask, why is that? Why is... He, why does he refer to himself as the Son of Man? And where does this come from? Well, it comes from a prophecy, from a dream that the prophet Daniel had in the, in the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament. And he was imprisoned, he himself was imprisoned, and he had this dream of these oppressive rulers. And these oppressive rulers were, were ruling many beasts, many, many beasts, and the rulers themselves were beasts and grotesque beasts. And so the, this idea of a beast was a symbol for, for, for being a bad ruler or, bad, or being oppressive or being sinful. But then there's this promise that a man would come and would liberate the people oppressed. And so in that dream, Daniel uses this term, the Son of Man. The Son of Man will come, and he will be not like the beasts, but he will be like a man. He will be a human. And so, of course, Jesus comes into the scene, and this is one of the, one of the prophecies that he is fulfilling, that he is indeed the Son of Man. And this is what he goes on to refer to himself to the most, over and over again, the Son of Man. And so this points to the great mystery of the Incarnation, that the second person of the Trinity became man, took on human nature, and lived and carried out the plan of salvation as God, yes, never ceased to be God, not even on the cross, contrary to what some may believe. But throughout his time, he was God, certainly. But throughout his lifetime, he was also man. And in fact, now in heaven, as he reigns in heaven, he is still man. He assumed with his human nature to, to heaven. So now the Son of Man is, is the one who carries out our salvation, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Now, this took centuries for the church to unfold. And one of the key players, one of the key theologians that contributed to this, to this understanding was our great St. Leo, or St. Leo the Great. And he was in the 5th century, and there is a lot of controversy in between two councils. And as the Council of Chalcedon came about, he, he wrote the, what became known as the Tome of Leo. 
And he came and he, he delivered this tome, this treatise to the council, and it was accepted by the council, it was canonized, so to speak. And then he went on to preach sermons, specifically around Christmas time, to expound on this teaching and make it pastorally accessible. And so I'll read a piece of that sermon. And before I do, just a quick note from St. Thomas on the benefits of meditating on the Incarnation. Our charity is inflamed because there's no greater proof of God's love than that God the Creator became a creature, that our Lord became our brother, and that the Son of God became the Son of Man. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The very thought of this should kindle and inflame our hearts with the love of God. So these are some of the benefits of meditating on the Incarnation and the great activity to do at any time of the year, not just around Christmas season, but now we're getting ready for Advent, it's fitting for, for that as well. So in, in the first chapter, I'll just read one paragraph here, he says, For the Son of God, in the fullness of time, which the inscrutable death of the divine counsel has determined, has taken on him the nature of man, thereby to reconcile it to its author, in order that the inventor of death, the devil, might be conquered through that nature which he had conquered. So the devil had conquered human nature, and it's precisely now through human nature that God conquers the devil. Then he goes on, Therefore the Word of God, himself God, the Son of God, who in the beginning was with God, Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, always was God, through whom all things were made, and without whom was nothing made, with the purpose of delivering man from from eternal death, became man. So bending himself to take on him our humility without decreasing his own majesty, that remaining what he was and assuming what he was not, he might unite the true form of a slave to that form in which he is equal to God the Father, and join both natures together by such a compact that the lower should not be swallowed up in its exaltation, nor the higher impaired by its new associate. Without detriment, therefore, to the properties of either substance, which then came together in one person, majesty took on humility, strength, weakness, eternity, mortality. And for the paying off of the debt belonging to our condition, inviolable nature was united with passable nature, and true God and true man were combined to form one Lord, so that, as suited the needs of our case, one and the same mediator became God and men, the man Christ Jesus, could both die and with the one and rise again with the other. Rather, therefore, did the birth of the salvation impart no corruption to the virgin's purity, because the bearing of the truth was the keeping of honor. Such then, beloved, was the nativity which became the power of God and the wisdom of God, even Christ, whereby he might be one with us in manhood and surpass us in Godhead. For unless he were true God, he would not bring us a remedy. Unless he were true man, he would not give us an example. Therefore the exalting angel's song when the Lord was born is this, Glory to God in the highest, and their message, Peace on earth to men of goodwill. For they see that the heavenly Jerusalem is being built up out of all the nations of the world, and over that indescribable work the divine love 
How ought the humbleness of men to rejoice when the joy of the lofty angels is so great? I encourage you to read this some, at some point for Christmas or even today on the, on the Feast of St. Leo. And it's, it's not too, it's, it's, an, it's accessible. It's not too lofty. If I read it pretty quickly, so if you feel like, oh, I can't follow that, that's not true. You know, we can, we can, we can rise up. We can, we can learn these things. We can meditate on them for all of those benefits. But if you're looking for something really concrete to, to remember, I'll, I'll leave you with this. So notice he said, for unless he were true God, he would not bring us a remedy. Unless he were true man, he would not give us an example. Sometimes we may be inclined to say, when we sin, to say, oh, I'm only human. Well, that's not precise. That's not precise. We sin because we're fallen humans. If we were only human, if we were truly human, we wouldn't sin. Because Jesus is truly human, and he gives us the example. So we can sin, and we can ask God for mercy. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, God, I'm a sinner. And we can move forward in imitating his example and receiving his grace to then have our nature be united to the divine nature, which is the whole point of the incarnation. Saint Leo the Great, pray for us.